0: Our speaker this afternoon is writer Lucy Keating. Keating grew up in Boston and attended Williams College. After graduating, she worked in the New York City office of a book packager developing books for teens and then transferred to their LA office to produce shows for television. Keating's, um, sorry, Keating's first young adult novel, Dreamology, published by Harper Teen was released in April of this year. This book is part of a two book deal with HarperCollins. When Keating isn't writing, she now works for a company in San Francisco that designs games for teen girls that can be played and read on smartphones. This afternoon, Keating will discuss the process of publishing her first novel and the implications for her contractual second novel. Please join me in welcoming Lucy Keating to the Boston Athenaeum. everyone. Um, this morning when I was thinking about coming over here, perhaps as a way to redirect my nervous energy, I started obsessing over how you greet people at noon, that it's good morning is too early and good afternoon seems premature. And so I tweeted about it, and to the credit of all my amazing young followers, somebody wrote right back, and I said, just say greetings, earthlings. And I was like... <laughs> Okay, so greetings Earthlings, and welcome to my talk. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I've been coming to the Athenaeum since I was very, very young. I grew up just around the corner, Um, and most recently uh, it's where I get a lot of my writing done. I usually get hit with a deadline right around the holidays Um, and then when I come home to visit my family I spend a lot of time in the quiet room so I credit the Athenaeum with making sure I've finished any of my books so far Um, and so I'm just so thankful to be here and thankful to see all these faces in the audience, some of them familiar um, and some of them new. Um, My plan today is to talk a little bit about dreamology, tell you what the book is about uh, and tell you a little bit about the creative process um, that I use to make the content itself, and then a little bit about the sale of the book. I can tell you right away that my experience has not been very traditional, um, so I apologize for that. I don't have really a set plan for all the writers in the audience um, to follow along, but I hope that it will shed some light and and be inspiring in some ways. Um, So, Dreamology. Dreamology is about a girl named Alice. Um, Alice was born in Boston. She is the daughter of uh, a neuroscientist father and a primatologist mother. A primatologist, if you don't know what that means, is basically someone who studies apes, and in Alice's mother's case, uh, language, the evolution of language. When Alice is very young, her mother uh, takes a job in Africa, a research position, and leaves her and her father and basically decides not to come back. She continues um, her research in Africa. And Alice's father, heartbroken, uh, deserts his research and takes a job at Columbia. where he and Alice live for many years uh, in a tiny little apartment on the Upper West Side that's a sort of a combination of perpetual uh, professorial man cave and teenage lair. And they're very happy there until Harvard calls and says you have to come back and finish what you started. Uh, so they move back to Boston uh, to the house where um, Alice's mother grew up. and. Um, and Alice attends a new school. So one other thing you need to know about Alice is she has always had these wild and crazy dreams her whole life. They're always very positive, very magical, no nightmares. Uh, She goes on these adventures, wacky things happen. She um, floats down a river of milk on an inner tube. It's a giant Cheerio instead of an inner tube. She discovers new species of fish in the Amazon that have fur instead of scales. Um, The other thing you need to know about these dreams is they all have a boy in them named Max. Uh, Max is basically the most perfect teen heartthrob you could ever imagine. He's smart and he's kind and he's adorable um, and he's brave and he is in love with Alice, which is pretty much all any teenage girl or really anyone could ever ask for. Um, So the other thing about Max, though, is that he doesn't exist as far as Alice understands it. She thinks she's made him up in her head and and she knows it's crazy, but she doesn't really have an explanation for it Um, until she attends a new school in Boston and who walks into her psychology class but Max. Just cue the dramatic um, breaths. Uh, So really what this book is about is Alice and Max meeting each other again and trying to figure out why they have these dreams about each other. it turns out that they both attended a sleep study when they were very, very little because they both suffered from nightmares, um, and at, at a place called the Center for Dream Discovery, which in my imagination uh, takes place in a little weird building at MIT that doesn't exist. That's one of my favorite things um, about writing is that you can kind of take these liberties uh, and and just decide that things exist, places. And um, there's a scene where I say there's a there's a bathroom on the third floor of this. Bella Stewart Gardner Museum and many people could say, no there isn't. And I would say, well how do you know that there is? Maybe there is. Um, so besides that narrative, dreamology is a romance. It's an epic romance. It's a contemporary YA romance. And so the, the romantic narrative at play is really um, what happens when this girl literally meets the boy of her dreams. And that uh, love is not exactly perfect and that when that you sort of have to love people for who they really are and not um, as you may have imagined them to be. Um, and it can be messy and it can be complicated, which is really what Alice and Max have to learn about each other. And I won't give away much more than that. Um, so how did I come up with this crazy idea? Uh, Without beginning at my birth, I began um, writing stories since I was little and um, most significantly I always kept journals Um, and that will come up later as pretty important, but I do think that they helped me uh, find a voice for myself. It began in the sixth grade when I would sort of just write what I had for breakfast and what I did that weekend. And as I got older and I began to read back on the things that I'd done, I, I started to realize what I as a reader, wanted to see in my journal entries. And then as I grew older, I started to write with a reader in mind, thinking, okay, I'm going to tell a story of what happened this weekend, and in five years when I read this, I'll want to enjoy it. So um, I wasn't crazy about school. I was sort of just fine um, with it, and uh, it wasn't until I took a, a fiction seminar my senior year of college that I really understood what it was like to want to improve, um, to not just learn the material to do well on a test, but to actually uh, want to get better um, at the subject, and that led me, when I graduated, to apply for a job at a company called Alloy Entertainment. Um, Alloy is what's called a book packager, and a book packager is different from a traditional publisher. They come up with ideas in-house, and then they find young writers to uh, young and aspiring writers, to write those ideas that they then collaborate on and sell to a publisher. So um, I went in for this interview, I thought this is like the coolest thing ever, you can create teen content uh, for a living. And I sat down and one of the questions they asked me was, um, what did you read as a kid? And I knew there are a lot of right answers for this, and I should say something like, you know, a tree grows in Brooklyn, which is uh, one answer I I often give, but, I decided to be perfectly honest and tell them that what I read as a kid was a series called Making Out. (laughs) Um, And to give you some Boston, some Keating family lore, I guess, um, when I grew up around the corner, I would always walk down to Borders Books in Downtown Crossing. I don't think that's still there. Is it? No, okay. So I would go there on the weekends and um, it was there that I discovered this series. And Making Out was uh, about six kids who lived on an island in Maine and um, It had intrigue and romance and friendship and they took the ferry to the mainland every day and there was like a secret nobody knew about and had these alternating journal entry chapters written in different handwriting for each character and I was completely obsessed with it. And I would just go down every Saturday, buy a new one, I come back and my parents were like, This is so great. What are you doing today, Lucy? I'm going to go buy a book downtown. And then I think they discovered there are 27 volumes on my um, bookshelf that said Making Out. And I don't think they were as that happy about it um, as they had been uh, before they learned the truth. So that's what I said in that interview. I just said Making Out. This is a series that I read. And they said, well, we made that. That was one of ours. So that, I think, was definitely a coming together of some kind of fate um, and what led me into this whole teen genre in the first place where I've kind of found a home. Um, so to tell you a little bit more about Alloy because I think it's really affected my writing process, the way they work, as I said, they create these concepts um, and they're they're what's called, they're really high concept stories and so for me, I usually come at a story from a world building or character place. I think um, this is, a world I wanna hang out in. Or like if somebody asks me if I enjoyed a book or what I think of a character, I'll usually say, I didn't like them, I didn't wanna hang out with them. Um, that's not always true, I also really like unreliable narrators, so uh, they're pretty dangerous, so I don't like to hang out with them necessarily, but for the most part, that's how I see particularly YA. Um, and so we would have these meetings at Alloy and we'd go in and we could pitch ideas and they everything would get trashed because they'd say, what happens? What's the concept? What's the hook? And I'd say, oh, what if the girl travels back in time? Okay, what's the concept? Why does it matter? Um, what are we really seeing here? And it endlessly frustrated me because I'd think like this is a world. There's a lot of opportunity here, and they would just say like that's not um, that's not right. We're not there yet. Was what we uh, said a lot. And to give you sort of like an example of what that looks like, Alloy did a book called Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, um, and. That's about four teenage girls. They're about to go away for the summer and they find a pair of jeans um, at a thrift store and they all want them. It happens to fit all of them perfectly, which doesn't make sense because they're all different shapes and sizes. Um, And so they fight over these jeans and they decide the only way to fix it is to mail the jeans around all summer from one to the other. And they believe these jeans have a little bit of magic because whoever gets the jeans ends up sort of something fantastic happens the day they were wearing them. And all that really is, is the jeans sort of gave them the confidence to, to address the matter they were wrestling with that summer, whether it's one is living with her dad and his new family and um, one is dealing with the loss of her mother, so that concept came up because people at Alloy sat around in a room and somebody said, what if there's four girls and there's a pair of pants and it fits all of them the same way? Um, So this has sort of just been a part of my training. This is like how, I don't have an MFA um, or anything like that, but this was kind of what was ingrained to me in terms of how I was looking at teen stories. And also we really look at the protagonist teen girl, what does she really want? What is her obstacle? What is she going to learn over the course of this book? And, and how does she feel about it? Um, we stick to really specific act structures uh, and that there are the proper highs and lows at the end of each of one of those acts. And, and some people disagree that that's um, the best way to write a book. And I, I like to sort of straddle the line. I think the audience in some ways expects those moments. Um, so I was in New York and I decided I didn't want to keep editing books forever. So I took a job in our TV office where um, we take the books we've made in New York and we help uh, turn them into TV shows and movies. Things like Pretty Little Liars and Gossip Girl and um, other, corrupting teen girl things like that Um, and I was really excited I think throughout this process I've always just been trying to sort of figure out where um, I fit in in the terms of storytelling I always knew I wanted to be telling stories I just didn't know how I wanted to do it and I thought maybe Hollywood's the right way it's really bringing these things to life and then I got there and I I really hated it like right off the bat um, I didn't I didn't. I didn't fit in, and um, whereas in New York it was a very small office and very collaborative, and uh, in LA it was very much pay your dues, get the coffee, answer the phone, and um, I did, but I didn't like it. And suddenly, I had no creative outlet, so I started writing again, um, and I returned to this idea that I had. Uh, continually brought to de- development meetings in New York, which was about a girl who has crazy dreams. And um, to me, this really fit a lot of the things we wanted to work with, that there was something that made her special and there was, um, there, there was a lot of potential here. But every time I had brought it to a meeting, they said, and what happens? And what next? And I had never landed on that. So in my free time, I started to poke around with that. Um, and I also think a big part of what happened in LA was was the first time that I was sort of watching time pass, like I'd gone to high school, I'd gone to college, I'd moved to New York, I'd moved to LA and then suddenly you're in LA which also has no seasons and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, a year has gone by and I didn't even realize it and that was a really big part of me moving forward in this process was saying to myself, where do I wanna be next year and how on earth do I intend to get there if I don't um, make moves, write this manuscript and show it to my boss which was, terrifying. Um, but I did. And I went into his office and I just said, I've written this partial manuscript. I think it's a good idea. I'm not going to show it to you if you're going to take it from me. Because I realize I'm still an employee. And um, and you might want to put somebody else on it and give it to somebody else. And uh, And he said... And I also said, and I have a friend at Penguin, and she's really interested in reading it. And that wasn't really true. I had a friend at Penguin, and she said, yeah, sure, I'll take a look. And, uh, and so that got his attention, though. And so he read it, and then I got a phone call from one of my old bosses in New York, and they said, um, we think there's something here, and we'd like to work on this idea with you, and, and, um, and try and sell it to a publisher, so, um, the one other thing they told me, they said, what you submitted is good, it's really typical sort of YA constructs, a lot of stock characters, it's not very surprising, we have worked with you for a while and we think you're a little bit weird and um, we think you should take another crack at it and they said, um, write characters that feel real to you, write a world that feels real uh, and and then let's see what happens and, and um, don't be afraid to be out there, and I was like, "Okay, um, you ask for it." So um, this is kind of where the Boston element comes in because I had a writing professor at Williams um, who said, "You know, the typical thing is that you, you say in fiction is write what you know." Um, he said, "Write what you don't know about what you know," um, because basically only you find your life as interesting. Um, as you do, does that make sense? Nobody else finds your life as interesting as you do, really. And so if you create enough distance um, between the personal elements of your story, then you can at least make sure that um, that it's a good narrative that you're creating. And I, I think there's a lot of, um, I, I really agree with that. So I started to bring in elements of Boston, of growing up here. Um, I've always thought that that there was a lot of magic to the city, that there, growing up in Beacon Hill with the houses are so skinny and tall and people are stacked on top of each other and nobody has a driveway and and sort of the the history that you feel when you walk around just created, I just knew it was different and special and so I wanted to bring that um, into the story and then we had been sort of throwing around an idea we, about like, what if there's a dream factory. That was like how it was first pitched, dream factory and I was like that's pretty cool, what do I do with that and um, my parents reminded me that my family had taken place in a study at MGH when we were young um, and uh, it was a it was sort of when AD, ADD and ADHD were coming out and people were starting to like explore, uh, do do more research about that and I had been so young I barely remembered any of it and I remember like like being in a room and like somebody pushing blocks in front of me and like putting them into like a weird puzzle and somebody like taking notes and standing in a hallway um, and so that was something I decided to bring in, which was like a, a lot of the inspiration for the Center for Dream Discovery. And so I think these were elements that helped infuse the book um, with some personality that people hadn't necessarily um, seen in the in, in that kind of YA before. And the other thing, the other personal element I brought in um, was about dreaming. And I had always had really crazy dreams, walking and talking, and um, I had always, I, people always think like, what do dreams mean? That's the first question everyone asked, and I'd never been very interested in the meaning of dreams. I just thought it was fascinating why we dreamed at all, that there was sort of like a biological uh, necessity for us to express ourselves while asleep. So. Um, I I read this book uh, called The Dreaming Brain um, by a scientist named Alan Hobson, and he sort of compared dreaming to mental illness, um, which is that the way we accept these illogical things while we dream, if that happened while we were awake, that would people would say we were mentally ill. And um, I thought that was super interesting. And then also, uh, you know, so many poets and musicians and writers have compared being in love to being sort of mentally ill in a way. And so um, it helps sort of with this metaphor that dreams and love are, there's a metaphor sort of between them that you behave in these crazy ways and you do things you normally wouldn't do. Um, And that sometimes when a dream ends and when a romance ends, it's sort of you look back and you're like, did that, you know, it's almost like, did it happen? So these were things that I brought um, into this thing, and I sent it in, and I was like, well, here you go. And uh, they really liked it. And one of the things that they liked was they said it was really conversational. And I think that related back to the journals that I'd been using this whole time, um, and that I essentially talked on the page like I had been doing for many years. Um, And that was a big selling point of the tone of the book. So to get into the selling point. We we, um, we decided to go out with the manuscript, we went out with a partial manuscript, and um, it was like, everyone told me it might be stressful, but it was definitely the, the most stress, stressful part of this entire experience, second only to the day my book came out. Um, and you're sort of waiting to hear what, if anyone wants it, if anyone wants to buy it, and um, in the end, we had a lot of, we, we got a preempt offer from HarperCollins for two books. Um, pretty quickly and we also had, it was sort of complicated. I don't usually get into this part of it but because this is um, how did I get it started. Basically we got a preempt offer and then we rejected it and we decided to go to auction with um, five publishers and then none of the publishers came anywhere close to the preempt offer and we were like oh my god, what did we just do and looking back, it makes a lot of sense because the hook of the book, A Girl Meets the Boy of Her Dreams, it made sense that a lot of people would want that book, but not necessarily that it was going to be, it was not going to be a Hunger Games or anything like that. So we went back to Harper Teen with the tail between our legs, and we said, we'll end this auction right now if you will give us the preempt. And Harper, maybe not knowing that we weren't really anywhere close to the numbers that they'd offered, said, sure, we'll we'll give you the preempt. Um, The only other thing that was crazy about this story was that um, Harper's preempt was a house offer because the manuscript went out to four different publishers and, um, or four different editors, and they all wanted it. So they made us a house offer, uh, Offer, and then I got to get on the phone and um, decide who I wanted to edit this book. And the cool thing was, I was like, it was lunch break, I was in my boss's office, where earlier that day I'd been answering the phone, later I'd be getting lunch, and I was on the phone with all these editors who were just saying to me, you know, here's why I would like to edit your book, which was not something I ever expected to happen. Um, So really when I got on the phone with these people, I thought there were two more senior editors that I was really excited about. One of them had her own imprint and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she's interested in this and um, I'm ready, I, I, I hope sh- I hope I choose her. Um, but actually, I ended up going with a really young editor at the company because I felt that the two more senior people were really interested in the idea of the book and the hook, but when it came down to the actual contents of it, um, didn't totally get it. And uh, I'm not opposed to heavy edits. I think being in a collaborative company like Alloy for so many years, you get really used to having things tossed in the trash. Um, But I think my bigger concern was somebody's going to buy this book and want to make it, and I'm too green of a writer to have to write an entirely different book than the one that I just sold. Um, So I decided to go with this younger editor, and I've been really, really excited. I've been really, really happy with her, and um, the book came out in April, and it's definitely been Really exciting, good days and bad days. You know, Bad days are a bad review, Um, which there have been a couple of those. And then good days are just like, I'll be having a bad day and then I'll get an email from a teenage girl at like 11 p.m. and she'll say, oh my gosh, I read this in a day. Thank you so much for writing it. And that's all um, that matters, honestly, in the end. Uh, I've thought a lot about the meaningful parts of this process and if I can connect with one person Um, It really makes my day, of course, then talk to me the next day when I see a mean tweet about it or something, and then I don't always have the same attitude. Um, But yeah, so that was really how I sold Dreamology. I just finished my second book, the second one of the deal. Um, I can't tell you the title or the cover yet, but uh, it's about a girl who is a character in a YA novel. She realized that she, that she is being written by someone else, sort of like a YA stranger than fiction, if you've ever seen that movie. Um, so I'm I'm sort of continuing to play with, with what YA fiction is and the fact that I have worked in, in it for so long and, and continue to do romance and um, commercial fiction, but also play a little bit with girl literally meets the boy of her dreams and then a girl is a character in a book um, and it's been really, really fun. So. That's my story, and um, yeah, thank you all for listening.